This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Marina Sirdis, Deanna Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation. You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Joe Keegan. Justin's away again this week, two weeks in a row. Um, So obviously my favourite other podcasting host is with me today, um, and that is Amy Nelson. Amy, how are you today? I am doing great. I am here recording from Salt Lake City. Which isn't said in an offensive way, it's said in the way that they say it in the Book of Mormon, the musical, written yes. by the guys who wrote South Park, which is probably why it sounds offensive, <laughs> in case you didn't know. Yes. So, Amy, um, quiz time. Uh-oh. Amy, are you ready for yes. this? Okay, okay, bring it. Okay, so um, what is the motto of Utah? Because that is where you are just now. Oh, um, I know this. I know a lot about my home state. Okay, the motto is, uh, is, tell me how many words is it, will you please? One, well, based on Wikipedia, that's my only source, so if it's wrong. Industry. Yes, well done. Yes. One point. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding. Second question. Yes. What is the official nickname of Utah? Like the official nickname? The fi- not a, what you call them now, like the, the you get the Sunshine State, which is Florida. Oh, what is the Beehive a- State. Correct. The Beehive State. Ding, ding, ding. That's when you get a point. You get ding, ding, ding. I'm waiting okay. for you to get a wrong one because then I have to make up a sound effect for an incorrect answer. Um, what is the name of the anthem, the state anthem of Utah? Utah, we love thee. Uh-uh. Yeah, huh? That's our state song. It's Utah, this is the place, according to Wikipedia. Uh, it's wrong. Well, you can okay. go and edit Wikipedia. I will up. have to. Please do. <laughs> Excellent. You got, according to my scoring technique, two out of three. Well done. You won a prize, <laughs> which right. is my love forever. Oh. Anyways, so, Amy, where is Justin? Well, Justin, Justin isn't, he's enjoying his holiday with his love, Rosie, and took some time off. You know, I took two weeks off and you took some time off. That's, you know. Yeah, I took time off to go to a Star Trek convention, though. That's like 
taking time off work to go to work. It's still really. family. True. It's still family. Same, same, same in the, in the same family. Okay, cool. Yeah. So we have some Babel conference feedback. Um, and we have Babel conference feedback from Earl Grey episode 303, which was the science and TNG part five. Amy, would you like to give us some feedback, please? Yes. So Drew Barker writes, I really enjoyed this episode and I'm glad you're going to carry on with at least another science in Star Trek one. So yes, we have the movies to go over. So Drew, we are going to have more science in TNG. We have the movies and also we might have a super extra special guest on who's like super famous um, not for being in Star Trek, but for being a proper scientist. So they may be joining us sometime in the future. Yes. Uh, Patrick Carlin says, hashtag still listening, I'd go to one where we got at least two or three more seasons of Enterprise. And this was in response to the question, Justin's question, where to what universe would you go to given an infinite number of universes? And Patrick would go to the one with two or three more seasons of Enterprise. And I think given the trash fire, which was Enterprise's season finale, not my words, I found these online, um, I think they deserve another couple of seasons. I would like to have seen what they did in seasons six and seven. Did they get five? Yeah. yeah. No, they only got four. Oh, they got four, so it's season five yep. and six. Cool. Yes. Well, we have Kimberly Lawler, and she writes, This was a fun episode. What gets me about the multiple universes thing is the idea that it's everything that has an alternate outcome, not even just minor decisions of human beings, but everything. It's impossible to get your head around. Like the size of the universe in general is too big even to comprehend. I do love parallels, though. I like the variety of topics on Earl Grey and also hearing listener feedback. I'm not sure I'd take that one single comment to heart. It's always good to consider feedback, of course, but consider, too, whether it's an outlier or not. The format you have works very well with you guys, and this is my favorite podcast. Well, thank you, Kimberly. Um, Parallels is a wonderful and I a wonderful episode, and yeah, it's mind-boggling thinking about every decision or what decisions is going to create this alternate timeline. But it's it's great. Yeah, you know, given I, I I consider myself quite a smart, intelligent person, and I've in my head canons understood the nature of the universe and its magnitude to a point that I'm kind of happy with. I can say, yeah, I understand it, and it sits quite well with me. However, then I actually think about the nature of the universe and the possibility of every decision or every option that's available to every quantum-sized particle gives rise to an infinite number of other realities and other infinite universes. And I'm thinking, hmm, yeah, I don't really understand this much. I don't really know what it's talking about in the slightest. So quite happy with my little existence as it is in the fact that I don't understand anything really. So, so good. We also have an iTunes review, um, which is one of the reasons why I love Canada in this case. So, Larion, via Apple Podcasts, in, uh, on December 18th, 2019, gave us a five-star review entitled Fun and, well, more fun. Wow. 
This podcast is amazing. These podcasters always find different, interesting ways to approach the Next Generation series. They love talking about Star Trek and its shows. The hosts, Justin, Amy and Joe, are very dedicated and always deliver quality discussions and exchanges. They regularly have guests coming to podcast with them. The knowledge of TNG and Star Trek in general is there. They know their stuff and they make great connections between Star Trek and their lives or our lives on this small planet. But honestly, I must convince that I only listen to Earl Grey because Joe is there. And that is the end of the comment. Oh, I don't think so. Keep on going, Joe. Okay. Okay. And the comment continues. And the only reason for me to enjoy these episodes is that Amy is hosting. Well, there we go. Well, true. Yeah, no, I had to squeeze you in there somehow. Not forgetting that my only motivation to listen diligently to Earl Grey is that Justin is present. Smiley, winky face. Diftor he smuzma is how the comment ends. Which, for those that don't know, is Live Long and Prosper in Vulcan. Oh, that's, that's lovely. Thank you, Larion. I, I think I remember, I think they said that in the motion picture. Now, the scary Vulcan woman at the beginning. She's talking to Spock and Vulcan. I, I'm sure I heard a smuzma somewhere. Mm. I was like, oh, I recognize that. It must be Live Long and Prosper. Then I Googled it and it was. So, Larian, oh. thank you so much for that um, email. It kind of uh, warmed my cold, dead heart. I know I've said that before, but I'm saying that again. Um, and happy holidays to you. I hope you live forever. Yeah, thank you so much. It's always so wonderful getting these iTunes reviews. And it's just so nice knowing that we have, you know, at least one listener every now and then. So, yeah. We have a super very awesome special guest today in the form of Duncan Barrett, who is the host of Trek FM's Primitive Culture podcast. Duncan, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, no, I'm awesome. I'm good. Happy holidays or Merry Christmas or whatever your culture says. Right back at you. (laughs) Thank you. you. I hope you've got a quiz for me, by the way. Oh, um, I don't. No, I just knew. Um, I just there you go. You know, let's let's have a quiz. So you spent the day. You spent the day googling Salt Lake City, but uh, or Utah. I did. Uh, okay. but <laughs> so, in which shire are you, Duncan, at the moment of England? Uh, Sussex. Sussex. Okay, let's have a, a yeah. Sussex quiz. So, I will not um, know the answer. The to that. We, of... <laughs> we literally moved house about three weeks ago. So <laughs> three weeks. This will just be embarrassing. Three weeks. Oh, you yeah. moved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness! We just moved. Oh, I yeah. hope there's still a well, guest we... room for me. <laughs> uh, well, just about. There's a sofa bed, I'm afraid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We moved. We ended up. It's a very long story that I won't bore your listeners with. But we we were we were trying to buy somewhere, and the, and it all fell through. So we've ended up renting a tiny little cottage um, in this town, Lewis, that we moved to. Uh, so you know, if you find yourself over here, we can put you up. But it might be a bit more. Uh, cramped than it was the last oh, time. Oh wow! <laughs> Although hopefully we might have moved by then. I don't know. I don't know when you're planning your next trip, but you'd be very welcome. It's very lovely down here. Uh, we're right by the South Downs, about twenty minutes from Brighton. Um, really beautiful, lovely scenery. Let's not visit at the same time, maybe then. <laughs> Unless you don't mind sharing a sofa bed, you know. <laughs> well, I can do that. Uh, okay, this is quest time for Duncan. Keep things close on El Grey. Right. Okay. Yeah, this will be embarrassing. Okay. On which coast of England is Sussex? The south coast. That's correct. One point. Ding, ding, ding. 
Okay. Thank you. <laughs> that would be kind of bad if I hadn't worked that one out. As of 2011, to the nearest 500 square miles, what was the area of Sussex? Oh my that God. one's tough. No idea. To the nearest 500 square miles. Uh, this requires maths as well. So let me think. I mean, I would have thought 500. Is it more than that? How many? To the nearest 500. Yeah. I'm going with 500, which would be... No, no, hang on. Yeah. Yeah, because that's a lot. That That's like 50 miles by 10. No, maybe... maybe Okay, no, I'll go with um, 2,500. Oh, close, but no. <laughs> it's the closest would be 1,500 because it is 1,460.78 square miles. There you go. You see, I have to say, like, my, the reason my first guess was way out, uh, I apologise for Amy, it was just my, my maths. I was struggling to work out how to do square miles. <laughs> um, so at, le- at least I worked that bit out. Yeah, but okay, fair enough. Smaller than I thought then. Okay. And, um, okay, let's see, let's have another question. Oh, where is the kind of local government headquarters of Sussex? That's possibly two correct answers well, for this. that is a good question. I mean, I would have thought, because I know that Lewis, which is the town that I'm living in, used to be the uh, headquarters like back, because I was doing some research um, for a book into records in the 1950s and then they were all stored then but i imagine they've all moved either to eastbourne or brighton probably brighton interesting well um wikipedia gives the headquarters as either chichester or lewis okay so you can have the oh, well, point you because you did so say I get half a point maybe yes. no, you get a full point. <laughs> definitely used to used to, used to be lewis but i don't know if that's the case anymore I, i'm just my my researchers wikipedia say chichester or lewis Mm-hmm. And for a bonus point, what is the motto? Sussex. <laughs> yeah, motto of Sussex. Uh, I've no idea what no that idea. Um, and it's an unofficial Morris dancing. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's we want to be drove. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I have heard that one. I didn't know that was the motto of Sussex. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It means for Amy. Thank you. Won't. I'm like, what are these words you're speaking? Yeah. <laughs> Um, it means we, we won't we won't be driven away. We, Is that what it means? We will not we be driven. Be like, yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh, okay. okay. We'll That's stick to our all right uh, traditional ways. They're quite quite big into sort of uh, traditional pastimes here. I mean, there's a big, um, you know, even just just a couple of days ago, big controversy about the. Um, Amy, I don't know if you're familiar with the the Boxing Day hunt is a big thing that people um, oh, okay. still do uh, in England, despite the fact that it's been illegal for about, uh, what, like, you know, getting on for 20 years. And in in Lewis, actually, surprised, I find this surprising. Because mo- I certainly haven't met anyone in Lewis who would be in favour of fox hunting, but, you know, obviously there are some. Uh, and they meet outside one of the pubs in town. Um, I, th- I think it's almost deliberately to kind of stir up trouble with the people who you know are opposed to it um and i think that would be they they would see that as one of these things where it's you know this is our tradition and and, and damn it all and again with the bonfire with this big bonfire here every um you know on november the 5th and some of the kind of traditions to do with the bonfire uh have been quite controversial in recent years i know this because although we've just moved down here we actually were staying here a couple of years ago when all of this was kicking off um 
And so there's always a kind of battle between the kind of more right on sort of politically correct uh, people who are trying to change these quite sort of backward <laughs> uh, traditions in a way and the uh, kind of Sussex traditionalists who who won't be druv, uh, w- which essentially means, you know, we're going to carry on doing these things, however offensive they might be. Um, so it's interesting. I think there's, there's definitely that kind of tension. And a lot of it is to do with the, you know, the DFLs, the down from Londoners, the people like me who are kind of seen as coming in and imposing their um, interlopers, you know, yeah. cosmopolitan, Your liberal yeah, exactly, ways. Kind of yeah. cosmopolitan liberal <laughs> values. Yeah. Wow. You can always move back to London if it gets too much, if they chase you out of town with well, there you go. torches and pitchforks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Not impossible around these parts. Yeah. True, true. Okay, so um, I will admit that the idea of this topic kind of makes me a little bit nervous because it's like <laughs> way outside my kind of um, knowledge base, I suppose. I have spent quite a lot of time researching it. Um, and the topic is high culture and TNG, all the things that never entered my radar when I was growing up. Um, And I feel quite enlightened after researching it. So Duncan, tell me, why did you want to come on and talk about high culture? Are you highly cultured? (laughs) I don't know whether I'm highly cultured. I I suppose it was partly because my, I guess I was kind of thinking, what's a good bridge between Earl Grey and the podcast that I do on Trek FM, Primitive Culture? And Primitive Culture is, uh, as as one guest who I had on the show uh, a year or so ago, uh, described it to me. He said, after the interview, he said, God, that was like being, well, he didn't say God, he was a priest. He probably said something else. <laughs> he said, gosh, uh, that was like being on Radio 4. Uh, because I think we do tend to go for these slightly uh, heavy, serious cultural topics because that's kind of what we do. You know, we look at cultural influences on Star Trek, whether that's the Epic of Gilgamesh or Shakespeare or historical influences or whatever. Um, and it just kind of struck me that of all the Star Trek series, Next Gen, uh, which for me was certainly my kind of, uh, sort of gateway drug to the rest of Star Trek anyway, um, is the one that really brought this kind of high culture into the ship itself. You, you know, whether you have Picard with his Shakespeare, whether you have the uh, classical music concerts in Ten Forward, whether you have the the life drawing classes, um, you, you know, this kind of sense that everyone, one way or another, the ship is kind of involved in these sort of lofty cultural pursuits and that the arts and kind of... Um, traditional kind of the, the classics in a sense are going to be a route to that kind of exploration of humanity and, and finding out the best about humanity and so on and I think it's interesting I mean when you say you know this uh, topic seems intimidating or whatever I mean I think one of the things the next gen did that a lot of people would talk about and you know I could talk about um, myself but you know many fans will say that was that show made me go and read Shakespeare that show made me get interested. I don't know if anyone says it made them get interested in classical music. Maybe, maybe it did. Maybe it made, it kind of, I took up the trombone in school. I'm sure that was, you know, subliminally influenced uh, by Riker. Whether we call that high culture or not, I mean, the kind of jazz music and so on. But I mean, I think it's a show that absolutely, as despite being science fiction and set in space and about the future and all this, all, all these kind of trappings, that wears its kind of um, cultural uh the, the, the where's it, it's kind of influences not not so much its influences on the story but this this kind of this sense of humanity in the future as being tied to their past as being um it's finding something of value in the kind of canon for want of a better word or, or of sort of human culture i mean largely western culture but um 
you, you know, at least in theory, this kind of global uh, human and even federation um, culture and that, that that's sort of being important to them. So, so I think Next Gen kind of um, stakes some sort of claim to that. It's sort of saying something about this utopian idea of humanity in the future is very much one where we haven't forgot our past, where the past is something that we kind of carry with us. And I suppose Picard is the kind of real emblem of that. I mean, literally, you know, having a copy of Shakespeare open in his ready room for consultation at all times. Do you think they did that because he was a Shakespearean actor? And that was his... I think they must have done. Yeah. 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 That's got to be part of it. I mean, famously, uh, I don't know if you've heard this story about that when the casting was announced for Next Gen, uh, in the, I think the Los Angeles Times, he was described as unknown British Shakespearean actor Patrick Stewart, and Brent Spiner apparently got this printed out in big letters and stuck on Patrick Stewart's dressing room door. So that was kind of how he was known, unknown British Shakespearean actor. So I'm sure that was a part of it. And of course, the casting process for Picard, they'd found him in a Shakespeare workshop that he was teaching. Um, uh, so yes, I guess Patrick Stewart was very much identified with Shakespeare and with the kind of classical theatre. Uh, and later, of course, with A Christmas Carol, which is another thing that kind of works its way into next gen with the episode's tapestry. And then again, in All Good Things, particularly All Good Things, very heavily influenced by uh, A Christmas Carol, which Patrick Stewart was performing. He's been performing again this week, I think, at the age of 79 or whatever he is. He, he, he just revived the show, you know, many years on. Um, so again, the the sense i suppose that the actor brings those things to the character uh i guess gates mcfadden they knew she was a choreographer so they got her to do a bit of dancing and she directs plays as well and they got to do a bit of directing plays i think there is often an element of that um presumably jonathan frakes had been playing the trombone for a while and they decided to kind of bring that in so, so i think a lot of this it is picard that sort of sets the tone uh for this kind of um the sort of culture that we see on the enterprise uh, in the next generation. And I suppose it is Patrick Stewart who kind of influences Picard in some ways, those things kind of, you know, weave back and forth into each other. That's really interesting. I didn't know that um, Jonathan Frakes played the trombone and every time I see him play well, the might trombone, be wrong, but if he... <laughs> in an episode, I'm like, is he actually playing yeah. it or is he, is, is it dubbed over? So it's good to know what he had Because Brent Spiner is certainly not playing the violin. Um, I, I assume that Colm Meany is not playing the cello, though I could be wrong. Maybe he's actually a, you know, demon cellist. But um, Frakes, I think, is playing the trombone. I'd, I'd be interested. Someone can correct me. If not, I'd be interested to know. But It's interesting that I play the piano. So anytime I see somebody on TV or in movies play the piano, uh, I find it really amusing because it's, it's so obvious when they're not. Like Odo in Deep Space Nine yeah. when he's playing the piano and his hands are kind of roughly moving in the right direction <laughs> but he's like he's just doing that kind of thing um, sorry listeners you couldn't actually see what I was doing um, but and Picard with the flute actually there's a scene where if you watch it bearing in mind that it's not his hands playing the flute it's very obvious that he's he's just like kind of standing there with his, or sitting there with his hands behind his back and, and someone else's hands are kind of reaching up and, and playing the notes on the flute while he blows into it oh, so yeah. you know Oh, come on, it's essentially a penny whistle, isn't it? It's yeah, not that yeah. hard to, you could have done a wee Frere Jacques or something on it, surely. I know, you know, I mean, think of the research he did for other episodes. I mean, he went and watched, you know, hours of, of hideous videos from Amnesty International for Chain of Command. Uh, you know, you'd think he could have learned to play the penny whistle. Exactly, but yeah. There you go. Not in his contract. Maybe really. maybe he didn't have YouTube around at the time to um, for tutorials, <laughs> penny whistle tutorials. Yeah. Yeah. Amy, tell me, um, when you were watching The Next Generation originally, um, 
did Shakespeare, was Shakespeare on your radar as like an American, kind of let's call you a teenager at the time? Yeah, no, it wasn't. And um, when talking about Shakespeare and like with my friends at school, uh, my next door teacher neighbor, she's an English teacher. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need to talk to her because there's a lot of Shakespeare going on. And I don't really know all the stories um, that come up. And so I wanted to, you know, talk to her, but then she moved schools and I've just been out of touch with her. But um, no, there there really is so much in doing the research. I'm really quite surprised and I need to study a little bit more Shakespeare. I mean, everyone learns Hamlet in high school. So when I hear, you know, Picard speaking Hamlet, I'm like, oh, I know that. What a piece of work is man. I know that one because I had to memorize that soliloquy. But uh, the others is just completely lost. But Amy, did you memorize it better than Picard? Because that that uh, speech, Picard gets it wrong in the episode, which is a bizarre, I think. Um, I don't know how that happens. And I don't know how Patrick Stewart, who I don't know whether he played Hamlet, but he must have been uh, uh, in productions of Hamlet and must have been. And he was teaching the Shakespeare workshop. I assume it was in the script and someone told him to do it. Or, or maybe it was just a bad take or something. But anyway, you know, because the, the line is what a piece of work is a man, not man. Um so it's very strange, I think, that we that we have Picard actually misquoting Shakespeare. Unless, of course, you, you know, the, the universe that Star Trek takes place in, uh, Shakespeare wrote something slightly different. And there are and there are different versions of Hamlet. I mean, there are famously bad quartos and good quartos and so on. There are there are different readings of different lines. But as far as I know, that is not one of them. Hmm. I, I, I mean, again, I'm not a Shakespeare scholar. I may be wrong. Maybe in some bad quarter that is, that is there. But, it's, you know, generally speaking, that line is given what a piece of work is a man, not man. Um, and I think this may be an example of the writers changing it to it, it slightly underscores the point that Picard is making better uh, in, in, you know, removing that A. But at the same time, it is odd because, uh, it, you know, for anyone who's really familiar with Hamlet, it kind of registers as, oh, he's, he's just got the line wrong, you know. And, and he's, just, he's kind of making a point of um, the fact he says, doesn't he say, he say what Hamlet says with irony, I say with conviction without conviction what a, conviction there you go yeah 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 um so he's already sort of saying i'm i'm misappropriating this speech but he's not only misappropriating he's actually misspeaking it okay so he missed out the a but kind of in context because he's talking to q they're talking about humanity in general so it makes sense for him to exactly leave out the a. yeah yeah okay, I, I get that now yeah yeah and but since he gave q such a hard time for changing the word world to galaxy it seems that's that's kind of cheeky of him Maybe he's testing him. Mm, possibly. Maybe he's te- just checking that Q's actually, you know, memorised the whole of Shakespeare. Imagine being able to do that. Because I'm reminded, like, if Q could do that, and then there's the point in, where is it? Um, what episode was it? Data is dating Jenna DeSoro. Jenna DeSoro. Oh, in theory. Oh, in no, theory, no, 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 yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, in theory. Um, in theory. And he's there having that kiss. And Jenna immediately thinks, so what are you what are you doing at the moment as well as kissing me? And one of the things was that um oh, have I got confused again? I have, haven't I? Yeah, never mind. I've got confused again. it wasn't Shakespeare, it was Dickens. He was analysing the complete works of Dickens. So like Hugh, if Hugh knew the complete works of Shakespeare and Data could learn and analyze 
on a whim the complete work of Dickens and like we can Picard can barely memorize a, a soliloquy <laughs> and I can barely hold a thought together or string two words together. Um okay. Um yeah there are lots like throughout TNG they're just the use of Shakespeare is really obvious. It's used in other and they use it in Star Trek six um with Henry V, once more into the breach. Um it's an episode of a Deep Space Nine. Um it's the name of a Deep Space Nine episode. Um we see Data rehearsing Henry V and he said, um, I think that's an emergence. And in the defector he's saying In the defector, it. isn't it? In, right, okay. Well he's in one the of the defector them, has that I scene mean, where, where Patrick Stewart plays two Two roles in one scene, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's from his, uh, uh, Henry V. Brummy accent. Yes. Yeah. But in, in the in emergence, he's saying that he's using Henry V as a way to understand humanity better. No. Oh, okay. No, no, Not no. Not the no, Tempest. No, no. Or is it the bar the way around? Isn't it the Tempest? I, I haven't seen that oh, episode for ages. I'm pretty sure it's the Tempest because, because emergence is the kind of seventh season episode of Next Gen and the Tempest is Shakespeare's final play. So I think there was kind of a thing there of... of oh, okay. Possibly. You so know, this in is the us defector, kind of getting ready to say goodbye. Okay, okay, okay. Hold on, because there's two things going on here. So the defector is where Data is performing Henry V in order to understand humanity, and and uh, Patrick Stewart plays one of them in, in heavy makeup. But that's what he's doing in Emergence. I had a question, and this is one of the things that I wish my knowledge of Shakespeare was better because Emergence. Um, Data is performing the final scenes from The Tempest as Prospero. And The Tempest is, I guess, and I just found this in my research, that Shakespeare's own farewell to the theater and Emergence being one of the last episodes of the series and that they said that Emergence sort of follows The Tempest. And I would like to know more. I mean, I don't know anything about The Tempest. And so I want to see those you know, the story of the Tempest and how it's being told in Star Trek. Well, you know, I i mean, Tony and I, way back in the kind of early episodes of Primitive Culture, we did, I think, a two-part uh, episode on Shakespeare and Star Trek. And, and Shakespeare has always been a huge influence on Star Trek, you know, going back to the original series, um, something like The Conscience of the King being the most obvious example. Right. But, you, you know, Shakespeare kind of crops up one way or another in Star Trek all the way through uh, through to Deep Space Nine, the episode um, which you mentioned once more onto the breach, not only has a Shakespearean title, but has kind of Shakespearean couplets written into the dialogue. I mean, it's very much, and the character of Core in DS Nine is modelled on Falstaff um, in the Henry the Fourth plays. So, so Shakespeare's always been a big sort of underlying influence, I suppose, on Star Trek in in, in particular episodes. I mean. I can't remember whether Tony and I even particularly looked at that episode, Emergence. It, it does have uh, a reference to The Tempest. It does have this sense. Yeah, I mean, because Prospero at the end of The Tempest is seen as a kind of stand-in for Shakespeare uh, he, he because he gives up his magical power. He's, he says, uh, this rough magic I hear of Jewel. He's sort of letting go of this kind of magical creative power in a sense um and drowning through you know throwing into the sea his his book of spells and so there is definitely a sense of this is shakespeare kind of um laying down his art in a sense uh, and the next gen writers were kind of playing with with something along those lines i mean i guess in terms of the episode itself i kind of have to go back and watch it which I, and i haven't seen it it's not one of my favorites i haven't seen it for a few years but i suppose there is the sense of you know prospero is kind of commanding these 
spirits, uh, you know, Ariel and the other spirits of the island. Um, and there's maybe a sense that, you, you know, there's this idea of the kind of the ship becoming conscious and this kind of emergent entity that's coming out of it. There's maybe something there about these kind of spirits that are that are longing to be free. You know, Ariel is longing for his freedom uh, and, and, and wanting to kind of be let go. And in a sense, maybe the ship is, you know, birthing this kind of. See, this is why we have has to be let go. Duncan. But that's that's off the cuff. I'd have to go. Yes, <laughs> go this is why we invite smarter people than us onto Earl Grey. That's yeah, that totally makes sense. Oh, so. wait till we talk about science or maths. Then Duncan will be like, uh. <laughs> then I'll be lost. Look, I could I couldn't do square miles. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Between the three of us, we've got all our bases covered. So that's cool. Yes. Mm. So another one we, that we I really like. Yeah, another one that I really liked was from Menage Troy, and I think it's one of the more, you know, memed ones. This is where Picard is, you know, talking to the Ferengi. And so I looked it up, and his little speech, he says, My love is a fever, longing still for that which longer nurses the disease. In faith, I do not love thee with mine eyes, for they in thee a thousand errors see. But tis my heart that loves what they despise, who in despite of you are pleased to dote. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And continues. So that is a string of uh, quotes from Shakespeare's sonnet number 18, number 141, number 147, and Othello. So... I just thought I would mention that here. And and the great thing about that scene, and you're right, it has become this kind of this meme, which apparently is, is referred to as the angry Picard meme, which is weird because he doesn't look angry to me. No. He's not angry in the episode, but that's that's how apparently that what that meme has, has come to represent for many people. What I love about that is that is Patrick Stewart doing bad Shakespearean. You, you know, Patrick Stewart, one of the greatest Shakespearean actors uh, alive. Um, I mean, I've seen him in it. In The Tempest, actually, I saw him playing Prospero in The Tempest. He was wonderful. I mean, he's a you know brilliant Shakespearean actor. Uh, and if anyone's interested in the kind of work he was doing before Next Gen, go and find. There's a, a series which I don't know, it, it probably is available on DVD. I mean, I think I watched it in old VHS tapes years ago. But there was a series that the RSC made in the 1970s called, I think it was called Playing Shakespeare. But anyways, it was like sort of six or seven episodes. And they they basically just took the current uh, sort of company of the RSC and they they did this series of workshops and filmed them um, going through I don't know you know character one week and uh, verse speaking the next uh, and so on uh, and they are just a they're very interesting if you're interested in learning about Shakespeare you learn a lot from them b just the the people that are involved you know you've just got this stellar cast of I mean Patrick Stewart is the least of them you've got Ian McKellen uh, you've got Judy Dench. Um, you've got uh, David Suchet, who you know went on to play Poirot and, and various other things, um, all just giving these amazing uh, performances of you know individual monologues or, or scenes or whatever in this kind of workshop environment. And so you get a real insight, I think, into who Patrick Stewart was as an actor before Star Trek, in a sense, and to kind of his approach to Shakespeare versus some of these other actors. I mean you know, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, as much as now we think of them as kind of best buddies, uh, they're very, very different. They're kind of approached to the same material, very, very different styles, very different kind of, um, you know, personalities and so on. So I'd absolutely, you know, 
definitely recommend that. But it, aside from anything else, it will just give you a sense of what a brilliant Shakespearean actor Patrick Stewart is. And then to go and watch that next gen episode where the joke is basically, because the joke is always that Picard is a terrible performer. There's that episode where Beverly uh, is going to offer him part in the play and he says, oh no, I'm, I'm not much of an actor. And it turns yeah, out she only wants him funny. to play the butler who has like two lines or something. So that's kind of the joke is that I suppose they, you know, they knew I mean, for my money, Patrick Stewart is by miles the best actor that Star Trek has ever, certainly the best, like, lead actor, the best, um, you know, main cast member that they've ever hired one way or another. Uh, not to say anything against any of the others particularly, but it just in a different league as far as I'm concerned. And yet we have this kind of running joke about how Picard is a terrible actor and, like, you know, yes, he's he's brilliant at so many things and he's this Renaissance man, he knows everything and he's, he's this wonderful, noble character, but the one thing he can't do to save his life is perform. Unlike, say, Janeway, who, you know, we see in, uh, say, um, when she has to be Queen Arachnia, kind of goes to that like a duck to water. Picard, it's always a bit uh, bad. If you think of, like, even Dixon Hill, Picard is bad at Dixon Hill. He's bad at Shakespeare. He's bad at, you know, any of these things that he, he gets forced to do. He's just very uncomfortable with it one way or another. But he's playing a wooden character really well, isn't he? Exactly. I think, yeah. I think yeah. in that, um, what he's... Um, serenading Roxana, he is playing mm. Picard. Is playing me, playing Picard, playing Shakespeare. <laughs> that's wow. that's how bad it is. Yeah, um, that is not the only time that we see the sonnets being used in *Manager um, Troy*. We also see it in *The Schizoid Man*, um, where he says to Doctor Ira Graves. So long as men can breathe or can eyes can see, so long light lives this, and this gives life to thee, from Sonnet 18. And also in The Measure of a Man, um, Bruce Maddox says to Data, when in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, from Sonnet 29. So yeah, just so much Shakespeare. Yeah, there is. And what I found interesting was that you know, Maddox finds this book, you know, in Data's quarters, and that book was given to Data from Picard. And so we have reference of that in Measure of a Man. And then we also have reference in uh, The Most Toys when uh, they all think that Data, you know, died, but he was captured. Um, and Picard reads from Data's Shakespeare book, um, and it's a piece from Hamlet, when he says, he was a man, take him for all in all, I shall not look upon his like again. And so I like that, you know, sort of continuation of, you know, this book that Picard gave data throughout the series. I think there's an interesting point as well. I mean, that Star Trek has always used Shakespeare one way or another. I mean, Star Trek's, always, Star Trek's writers have always been inspired by Shakespeare. But I think what Next Gen does more than any other Star Trek series certainly is kind of brings... Shakespeare not just into the scripts but onto the ship in a sense so it's not just that the writing is is alluding to it or you know say Nicholas Meyer in in um Star Trek 6 well he I suppose he brings it into the ship as well insofar as he brings it into the the dinner table scene and, and the Klingons particularly General Chang is, is obsessed with Shakespeare and quoting Shakespeare in this kind of quite irritating way frankly you, you know just constantly kind of dropping lines in here and there but I guess what Next Gen does is it kind of brings the plays and a kind of literary appreciation of the plays into the lives of the characters and particularly Picard and Data and I suppose with a lot of these kind of cultural things whether it's you know the classical music whether it's the art whatever it is 
they're often ways for Picard to act as a kind of cultural mentor to data. So there is this link between this sort of high culture and this kind of you know, sort of liberal artsy education and this idea of data becoming more human. And the way he's going to become more human is, you know, I mean, admittedly, later on, he's getting involved in, you know, Gilbert and Sullivan and, and so on, slightly slightly more kind of popular forms of entertainment. And, and he's, you know, also doing Sherlock Holmes with Georgie and so on. So he, he has a kind of widespread. But I think as far as Picard is concerned, it's about sort of giving him the, the sort of highest... Uh, level of culture in, in some ways you know he, he's going to school him in Shakespeare because he's sort of an expert in Shakespeare um I don't know who it is who's teaching him you know the violin or, or whatever but that, that's another element of it is that he's going to you know kind of take up these um uh you know sort of cultural pursuits and, and learn something and there's that great episode as well with the life drawing class I mean that's the other you, no other Star Trek series can you imagine there being a life drawing class uh you, you know with a nude model sitting there and everyone very seriously you, you know trying to, to to paint this woman's picture and so on and there's that wonderful scene where basically Picard is doing his best to, to do his painting and again I suppose just as he's not much of an actor actually as much as he's very cultured and very kind of um passionate about uh the arts he's actually he's pretty crap at painting as well <laughs> and data essentially rips apart his painting and says yeah you know uh you know well do you want me to be honest because <laughs> this is not very good um and i suppose there's that kind of um that's almost a joke i feel like that joke is kind of picked up in voyager as well there's this jane where i think there's an episode where she's trying to paint and, and, and not being very good at it but just the very fact that there is a, a life drawing class in the enterprise i think gives you an idea of the kind of uh, institution it is it is almost like a kind of um sort of rather almost slightly snooty highbrow art center in space you, you know where you've got the kind of classical concert one week you've got this um you know, life drawing class in another room you've got you've got Shakespeare on the holiday everyone seems to be up to very um sort of lofty pursuits they're not it's not quark's bar where everyone is off you know kind of sex and sword fights going on in the in the holodeck in the suites, as far as we can see this is this is somewhere where uh the, the the kind of cultural pursuits are um aiming for a certain kind of level of respectability and uh sort of seriousness somehow it's, it's not just about entertainment it's not just i mean even compared to other star trek series you know on enterprise we see the film night uh for example which is really just about kind of popcorn and, and fun as much as they might be what we would kind of consider classic movies they're, they're often slightly kind of um cheesy classic movies one way or another um you know on voyager for example we've got a kind of mixture because we've got something like um tom paris uh where it's all about kind of entertainment slightly schlocky entertainment again you know whether that's captain proton whether that's the 3d cinema that he sets up in the holodeck um it's all kind of lowbrow culture and then of course you do have the highbrow culture via the doctor who's singing opera and so on but it's seen as ridiculous it's seen as pompous it's seen as kind of an indication of the doctor's uh sort of superior um snobbish personality so in a sense as much as there is that kind of high culture on voyager it's put within a box of ridicule one way or another whereas on the next generation uh i can't imagine that you know that that, that wouldn't happen it, it wouldn't be you know no, no one would kind of ridicule picard for his love of shakespeare that's kind of absolutely integral to his kind of positive qualities as a captain whereas for the doctor it's sort of a sign of his ego and his kind of um, slightly absurd, sort of overreaching in a sense. There's kind of a sense of the doctor. It's slightly uncomfortable uh, narrative in some ways that while with data, you, you know, data is very kind of humble. Data is kind of absorbing all of this stuff, but um, 
is very kind of, you know, asking a lot of questions and, and very, very much sort of the student role. The doctor is very much like positions himself as the expert on everything. So he's very kind of arrogant and so on. And with him, this kind of high culture is almost sort of associated with, you know, the irritating snob somehow. Well, let's move into, you'd mentioned like the visual arts with the life drawing and and we obviously know and associate data with his oil paintings and his charcoals, uh, you know, when he was exploring his dreams in Birthright or when he was painting in 11001001. Um, you know, we just really do associate, you know, and he gives Worf a painting for his birthday. And, you know, he's, again, just exploring this humanity through this high culture through the paintings and the drawings. Um, it was interesting also to find in the research that uh, Data tends to be very ambidextrous, except when he is painting and he's using his left hand, and that's because Brent Spiner is left-handed. Is there not a point where he's using two hands to paint two different pictures yes. at one time? Yeah, that's in Birthright. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Now, I'm pretty sure Brent Spiner can't do that. Probably not, no. <laughs> um, that would be impressive. I know less about art, as in like the drawing and painting, than I do about Shakespeare. So when it comes to that kind of those aspects, I'm completely lost. So another uh, visual arts that I thought of and that I think is used quite a bit is pottery, um, where we have uh, Troy is instructing the class where Alexander, this is an imaginary friend, and, you know, she's, like, telling them that, you know, you, you want to make your clay uh, take shape, um, focus on the feelings that you want, and, and then that's when Data uh, builds the mask, you know, and, and sculpts this, and then it, you know, launches. But he, uh, she's also in there. Um, when Alexander is making a cup for his father, an imaginary friend. Um, and then also pottery is used as the winner of Captain Picard Day uh, in the Pegasus um, when the winner child makes a sculpture of Picard out of pottery. So we, we see this, you know, idea of using pottery and this art to express oneself uh, again just a very high culture thing and, and learning about humanity that way have they maybe just looked at taking a typical kind of local community art center slash town hall and looked at the what's on for a couple of months and said okay we've got this giant spaceship with over a thousand people on it a lot of families they're going to need stuff to do and let's just transplant that from our little town hall in the middle of Sussex to the Enterprise D so that people can go and go on the holiday and have kind of lowbrow, watch a movie, eat popcorn, or they can go and kind of read Shakespeare and learn violin or whatever. I think they've, they've just given themselves a, a hugely wide range of things to do. So they to keep them in these huge missions that last forever. I think that's absolutely a big part of it. And, and, you know, a lot of it is about kind of what do you do with your free time? And it's about kind of getting to know these characters through their hobbies one way or another. Um, but I think Amy was sort of hitting on something as well when she said it's about self-expression. I think there's an, ed an element 
I think there's an element um, with some of those stories. Uh, it's almost like art therapy, actually. I mean, when you talk about Troy encouraging people to pursue art as a way of kind of um, uh, sort of learning something about themselves. And actually, again, in Voyager, there's that episode where um, Janeway gives Harry Kim some time off and she says she wants him to kind of reflect on what he's experienced and so on. And one of the things she says is, uh, paint a painting I think you, you, you know kind of this idea and certainly for data there's this idea that you know through painting he's somehow going to get in touch with something about himself that he's not um, fully connected to so there is that kind of idea that through art you know even if you're not a great artist that through kind of amateur involvement in art somehow you can learn things about yourself as an individual and again through acting and performance and theatre I mean that's the reason Picard is encouraging Shakespeare. Uh, that's the reason Picard is encouraging Data to pursue Shakespeare is partly to learn about Shakespeare, but he could just sit there in the ready room and read it to him. But he's encouraging him to actually perform these roles as a way of trying to understand uh, other people, in a sense, and to understand the human condition. And I suppose that's one of the things that I think you could say is a, is a real link between Star Trek and Shakespeare is that Star Trek, as much as it's all science fiction, it's about space and it's uh, you know set in the future and all this stuff, really it does come back to, on a kind of weekly basis, uh, it's sort of interrogating what it means to be human. It's kind of looking at, you, you know, these sort of questions of sort of human identity and morality and all these kind of things, but never more so than in Next Gen, to be honest. And Shakespeare, arguably, you know, compared to the other dramatists of his day, is the one who, again, has this sort of um, unmatched insight into humanity and all its kind of varieties in all the kind of depth of human psychology i mean as much as he's not a kind of realistic writer uh, that, that we might think of you know from a kind from later eras he is one of the reasons that his plays are so popular and have survived for so many centuries is that kind of perceptive insight into human psychology that he brings to these stories that are, you know, none of Shakespeare's stories are original. They're all stories that people have heard a hundred times, um, you know, whether they're true stories or kind of, you know, basically sort of fictional stories. But what he brings to them is two things. I'd say, you know, one is the kind of very artful uh, poetry and, and sometimes prose, but, you, you know, really uh, memorable, brilliant writing. But the other is just this kind of, human insight and this kind of interest in people uh, and the kind of reality of people. And I suppose in some ways you could say Star Trek and Shakespeare are both sort of sharing that. They're ostensibly, I mean, Shakespeare, if Shakespeare writes a history play, it's ostensibly about kind of, you know, big battles and this kind of, uh, there's this sort of big storyline in a sense, but there's also this kind of really intense, uh, detailed human interest. Star Trek, again, ostensibly is this story about spaceships out in space and, you know, stuff going on in the future. And warp drive and transporters and all this kind of thing but again really when it comes down to it it's it's interested in something more um human and more kind of real well one thing that you said um that made me think of data and his violin and sort of moving to the performing arts that we see like when data was playing the violin and it was like he was saying Oh, who was it? Uh, Pulaski? Oh, I really can't remember. But and he was doing a mixture of different composers, you know, in trying to play what he thought was perfect and, you know, trying to interpret it. But he can't interpret it because he's an android. So he took this mashup of composers 
to play that violin piece. But, you know, so it was sort of him expressing. And I, and I sort of think that is Data's way of expressing himself because he specifically chose the styles of artists who played the violin. And so to, to mimic them, that was his expression of who he was. Do you remember I think that, that scene almost plays out twice from my memory because I, I'm pretty sure almost the same conversation takes place in the defector, and then yeah, again it might be in, that one. Yeah, in, in the is it the ensigns of command where we first see him playing? I think that might be where we first see him playing the violin in ten forward, and he and he has this line to because uh, Beverly and Picard have gone steer, and he basically says, oh. Yeah, I wouldn't bother watching this. But you, you know, you want to watch the guy tonight because the guy tonight is going to give a real performance, and I'm just, you know, an android, and I'm just kind of mimic it. And they have this conversation. They sort of Beverly saying, you know, don't sell yourself short, data. You, you, you know, you need to believe in yourself, kind of thing. But I'm pretty sure that in the Defector, and again, I haven't seen it for a little while, that they're sort of having a conversation, and, and Data is saying there, or certainly in one of these episodes where he's performing Shakespeare, he's kind of saying, oh, I borrowed a bit from. Uh, Olivier, a bit from Browner, a bit from you know all these kind of Shakespearean actors, basically. And Picard, I think, is the one sort of saying, "We need to find you. You know, you need to find your uh, way of playing this character, in a sense, not just copying bits and pieces uh, from the others." And I suppose, I suppose that has something to say about how do we read these kind of classical texts? How do we relate to something like Shakespeare? You, you know that ultimately it's about finding a connection between yourself and that um, story or that work of art or whatever, about finding a way that it sort of speaks to you. And it's interesting. I mean, the big, um, the, the, the episode that was really at the kind of forefront of my mind when I you know, suggested this topic um, was Darmok, which is my favourite episode of Next Gen. I think sort of the quintessential Next Gen episode because no other Star Trek series, I think, in a way could have pulled that episode off. And, and no other captain other than Picard, I think, could have pulled that situation off. Um, and it's partly because he's so well read and he's so kind of sort of classically educated and so on that he can uh, kind of paraphrase the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, you know, at a, at a moment's notice, essentially, even though, again, in that episode, he says, oh, I'm not much of a storyteller. You don't want me to tell you the story. Uh, and then he actually, you know, in this instance, does a pretty good job of it. Um, but it's it's also just this this sense that the the story uh, connect so directly to his situation. So it's that, it, it sort of underscores this idea that these ancient texts, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh is not something that many people uh, have gone and read. I've only gone and read it because uh, on Primitive Culture, we did an episode precisely about that. And I thought, gosh, I have to go and read this thing. Uh, and I was slightly dreading it. I have to say, I thought, oh, this is going to be boring. This ancient text, you, you know, it's, it's going to be hard going. Actually, it's fantastic. Really, um, not just sort of beautiful, but very kind of... Um, earthy and sort of knotty and weird and kind of kinky uh strange poem basically well worth uh <laughs> you know giving a bit of of time to but of course what's interesting with these kind of things is, is that sometimes we think oh that's uh you know some big leather bound book on a shelf or something that's kind of got nothing to do with me and my life um and i suppose really with these great timeless works of literature that what makes them timeless is that you can pull them down in you know 2019 or 2379 or you know whatever it is and they will have something that speaks to you and in that episode Darmok of course it's very directly relevant to Picard's situation because he finds himself you know the reason he's telling his story is he's basically saying look you know this is a story about these ancient people in the time uh you know before um you know this is uh 
sort of before biblical times, essentially. This is kind of really ancient, ancient um, human story. Uh, and look, here are we in this situation, which has a lot in common with it, uh, let alone Darmok and Gillard, whenever, you know, whatever time period they were existing in, who, again, were kind of relating ourselves to. So that sort of sense that, you know, our, our stories and our, our culture is something that we carry with us and that we kind of... Um, almost can live out again that we can our own lives can kind of connect to it that it can mean something to us that it can kind of inform our understanding of ourselves and of our you know situation and whatever journey we're on and all, all these kind of things i feel like that episode really stakes a claim to uh it, it sort of exemplifies a lot of what's the most wonderful things about next gen on the one hand it has this quite sort of science fiction concept this alien language that no one can translate no one can understand and on the other hand, very characteristically for next gen, the solution to that is in, you, you know, sort of go back to the classics, get those books off the shelf, sit there reading them and, and you know, you'll work it out, which is why I suppose it's Picard who's able to do it. And Riker, I was just watching that episode again today. It's a fantastic episode for Picard. It's a terrible episode for Riker. Riker is hopeless in Darmok. He's, you know, he's the one actually in charge of the Enterprise. Pretty much every decision he makes is a terrible decision. Uh, he doesn't really know what he's doing. He just kind of, he, he admits he's getting angry by it. He, he like just can't stand these people who are talking. He's basically, and he's like, uh, you know, the typical kind of... Um, person who goes on holiday to another country where they don't speak the language and just starts you know shouting at the, at the people speaking a different language hoping that somehow they're going to understand him uh and and it's actually frankly Riker's fault I mean not that he could have known really but the whole reason that Captain Dathon dies is because Riker pulls Picard out just when they were starting to to team up and do what Captain Dathon wanted so I think Riker has a lot to answer for in some ways in that episode but it's absolutely you know it's Picard's episode and it's kind of next gen's episode because all those values are so kind of closely entwined. And really it's the one, for me anyway, that hits all of those notes so perfectly and that really stakes a claim. If, if you wanted to say to someone, what is Next Gen about? To me, that's the episode you show them because it's kind of all there on a plate. No, you're definitely right there. It's not about all the fancy technology that they have because that couldn't help them in the end. It was about this this requirement for communication and the relationships and what it is to what it is to communicate with somebody and that's what great storytelling is about it's about communicating these human stories and i think that's what star trek does in abundance um see while we mentioned a lot about shakespeare yeah but I, when I was doing research, there was there's so much of other great literature that's just used throughout all of Next Generation. We mentioned earlier that Dickens um been used in Tapestry. I think Tapestry is Picard's version of the Christmas Carol. And I don't think I'd ever seen that before until I was doing this research. In and out it just seems really obvious. Um and then Obviously, Data was playing Ebenezer Scrooge, um, which is interesting because when he's doing that in Devil's Due, he's been critiqued by Picard, who is a terrible performer. Picard, not Patrick Stewart, which was interesting. But in addition to those, like the greats of Dickens and Shakespeare, we've got Arthur Conan Doyle and all the Sherlock Holmes stories. Um, we've got Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain's... Um, um, could, what you call him, Mark Twain's real name in Times Arrow. We've got Raymond Chandler, 
whose popular um, detective novels were used in The Big Goodbye. Um, and in the 50s and 60s, he wrote two books called The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye. And so I think for the episode name, they've mashed them up um, to be The Big Goodbye. We've got Moby Dick, obviously, by um, Melville in First Contact. At the end of that... Um, Which, again, Picard misquotes. Oh, does he? <laughs> Despite, ter- yeah, yeah. He's a terrible... <laughs> Despite, I mean, I know, I know. Do you know it's what? Shocking. In his de- in <laughs> his de- maybe, you know. <laughs> in his defence, we did have World War Three in between, which obviously yeah. corrupted all our data storage and maybe damaged some maybe of that's the answer. Of his great works. It- Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe because it's hard to believe that. You, I mean, the fact is, Picard can can pull out a quote from Moby Dick, at, you know, off the top of his head in a given situation, which is pretty impressive, and yet get it just sort of slightly wrong. So it's this kind of weird sense of of. But but he gives these sort of paraphrases very confidently, you know, very convincingly. So maybe you're right. You know, maybe it's not. I mean, I was saying, you know, maybe Star Trek's in a parallel universe where all these things were written slightly differently. But maybe you're right. Maybe the the texts that have come down have got kind of corrupted. Just as, you know, as I say, with Shakespeare, we had these bad quartos um, where, you know, often in that instance, the, the, the sort of famous bad quarto of Hamlet, uh, it's, it's kind of fairly obvious where it's come from because... Um, the character, the, the ghost, Hamlet's father, is the only one whose lines are actually correct. And everyone else's lines are a kind of really rough paraphrase of what they might be saying. So the scenes are kind of there in the right shape. And people say, broadly speaking, the right things. And there are odd lines that are, are the same as in the other versions. But a lot of it is just, uh, you know, so to be or not to be, it goes something like, you know, to be or not to be. Yes, that's the point. Ah, tis a good one. <laughs> tis tough that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, and it's very much clearly one of the other act, the actor who was playing the ghost obviously learnt his lines uh, and could remember them. And everyone else, he was sort of vaguely aware of what was going on and tried to write it down afterwards. And and he just obviously wasn't really paying attention, you know. So, but but who knows? Maybe maybe as you say, the the version of these texts that's gone forward into the future uh, is a slightly different one, one way or another. Uh, or, or another interpretation. The Star Trek writers uh, either a bit sloppy sometimes when they're kind of cutting and pasting or for sort of creative reasons often decide, well, we'll just sort of slightly tweak this line here because it's not, you know, we've we've, uh, pinched this from this literary classic or that literary classic and it doesn't quite sound exactly how we want it in the scene. So we'll just kind of sort of massage it a little bit to to give the impression we want. They've taken a bit of an artistic license to it and Mm, made it exactly what they needed. An interesting point about um, the portrayal of these works in, like if you take a screenplay or a play or a work of Shakespeare, it doesn't tell you how to perform these things. And the same goes for a lot of the classical music. And I suppose you could argue that there's a lot more instruction in music in terms of um, all the ornamentation and all the dynamic marks and when to play it quiet and loud. It kind of tells you what to do and um, a lot of classical music, um, but still a lot of it is up to interpretation. Let, look at there's some original manuscripts by people at Bach and Beethoven where they were right. They were you might have been like in your eighties still writing music, half dead, but you had these ideas that had to come out, and you'd have your old quill and you'd be dripping ink over there, and you'd be scrolling this music down. So like three four hundred years later when they come to kind of computerize your music and publish it for like me to buy and play, 
there's a lot of translation that has to be done. There's a lot of guesswork. Or did Bach mean to make this a B flat, or is it is it a flat sign, or is it a natural sign? What's there's a lot there's a lot of interpretation with certainly classical music, but also more so with kind of anything that you have to perform, like any text that you have to perform. How does it make you feel? And I suppose your performance is going to be all down to your previous experience on earth, what does that tell you about what the character's feeling? And obviously in context with the story so far, I suppose. And I think that question of what does it make you feel, again, is sort of a key part of it. Is this kind of what's your response to it, whether as a participant or as a as a member of the audience? I mean, the, the episode that kind of came to mind for me, thinking of the kind of classical music on the Enterprise D, is Sarek, where, you know, really what that scene is about is the fact that it the music affects Sarek emotionally and he you know he shouldn't be responding emotionally to music because he's a Vulcan and it's this real kind of moment of drama around the fact that you know he cries a tear listening to this um sort of beautiful emotional music essentially and interestingly again in next gen completely uh seems completely appropriate that there'd be this classical music recital going on in 10 forward and that's what the ambassador would be invited to and, and so it makes perfect sense when Voyager replays the same scene uh, again, and you have this kind of um, sort of fantasy scenario where it's Tuvok who who is responding emotionally to uh, the Doctor performing opera. It's a joke. You know, it's the kind of Doctor's silly fantasy. It's, it's one of his daydreams. I think it's in that episode where he's daydreaming the whole time and it's played for laughs. So again, sort of by the time you get to Voyager, this sort of uh, high culture of next gen has become something to be sort of satirized. It's become something that can't be taken seriously. Whereas, you know, within next gen itself, it's absolutely... Uh, sort of played straight down the line. There's no irony about it. There's no, there is no sense of, you know, um, I suppose what you see in first contact, you, you know, where in first contact you have Lily as the voice, basically, you know, she, she says directly calling bullshit on Picard's kind of lofty, you know, we're better than, than we used to be. We're these kind of evolved human beings, uh, you know, he talks about how they've given up on money and how they've sort of bettered themselves and, and so on. There's this kind of real, Star Trek ideal, certainly next gen ideal, the kind of ideals that uh, Roddenberry, I think, conceived the next generation uh, with of these kind of sort of perfected humans, even compared to the original series. And I suppose in First Contact, you have Lily kind of puncturing that bubble one way or another. Again, in Voyager, where you kind of have these sort of callbacks or references to these things from next gen, you have that kind of sense of this being a, a sort of highbrow pomposity that has to be punctured. I mean, in DS9, you just have a very again, a kind of very different approach. I mean, I, I always find it strange going back to those early Next Gen episodes and we see um, O'Brien playing the cello in the Ensigns of Command. Uh, and it just seems so so out of character for the O'Brien that we that we know. You know, in Next Gen, you have O'Brien drinking synthol and playing the cello. In Deep Space Nine, you have O'Brien, uh, you know, downing ales and playing darts, basically. And that's kind of the O'Brien that we sort of come to know and come to love. But um, I'd forgotten this. I actually had to look into it. There is actually uh, a line in one of the early Deep Space Nine episodes that references uh, the fact that he used to play the cello. And he, um, he because he's ex- it's the one where he's explaining to Jake, he's been, Jake has been, he's been sort of mentoring Jake to try and get him to uh, up to speed so he can apply for Starfleet. And it's the point really where he realises that Jake doesn't want to apply for Starfleet. And he says, well, you know, the funny thing is my dad wanted me to be uh, a concert cellist and was sort of hothousing me. And I was, you know, I was this really great cellist when I was a teenager or whatever. And he wanted to send me off to some, you know, musical academy. Uh, and I was the one who said, no, I'm not doing that. And I went off and um, 
you know, signed up for Starfleet instead. So there's that sort of sense of even within the writing of Deep Space Nine, they've taken this detail about this character, the fact that we saw him playing the cello once, and they sort of said, yeah, someone else made me do that. I didn't really want to. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't know what, you know, why is he still playing on the Enterprise? Obviously, maybe someone noticed he had this background and twisted his arm and, you know, uh, Riker or Picard or someone said, ah, oh, you know, Mr. O'Brien, I, I, I see your, you know, grade eight cello. Uh, we need you. Uh, for this uh, string quartet and you know what's he going to do he's going to have to say yes isn't he but it's interesting that Deep Space Nine specifically brings back the idea of Miles as a cellist in order to say he didn't want to do it that wasn't him that was kind of this sort of again not exactly this kind of pretension but this that was someone of an older generation's idea of what the right thing to do was that, that this kind of classical music career was something that he should be aspiring to and he actually wanted to you know fix computers for a living basically you know he kind of you know he would have gone off and i don't know worked for microsoft or something he wouldn't he wouldn't have done this kind of classical uh sort of old-fashioned career in a sense really interesting I've, all of those details have never occurred to me before and i was thinking earlier today the inclusion of all this let's call it high culture was it for I'm making assumptions. Was it for an American audience that might not have experienced this kind of thing before? Like Shakespeare and classical music? Was it to bring something a bit a bit of depth to what was a, a mainstream sci-fi series? Like Star Trek was always cowboys in space, essentially. But then we're making it a bit deeper. And then with Deep Space Nine and Voyager, yeah, we've done it. Let's, we don't have to do it again. Maybe I'm not sure, Amy. I can't. Re- I can't really comment on what an American audience would have thought at the time because. Well, listening to you know Duncan really making the comparisons through the series, it just sort of came to mind that it does really fit in with Next Gen perfectly because when you look at the original series, like they are exploring. And so that's their main goal. And where with next gen, it's like, yeah, we've been exploring for 300 years. And, and so we have overcome what is this hope and this, this idea that we are going to, you know, shove off money, we're not going to have disease, we don't, you know, what is it that we're going to do? So the answer is, we are going to do high culture, and we're going to see it in the hobbies and how they interpret themselves and how they explore humanity is through this high culture. And I think it was next gen's answer. And so we get to see so many examples, you know, like with Picard in his Resican flute, like, uh, when in Fistful of Data's, the loud speakers going, it's like, what's going on? And it was Picard making this composition of Mozart, including the Resican flute. And so this is what you did in your spare time to, to answer the question, what do you do? Like we are, we are bettering ourselves. And then when we get to deep space nine, well, there's a war going on. So there's not that much time to better yourselves in that aspect because we're fighting a war and with Voyager, they're trying to get home. So there's not that much time. So I think in Next Gen, it does fit in so nicely. It is taken seriously um, because we are answering that question, how are we bettering ourselves? And the way that it seems to be is through high culture. Well, I think it also ties into this kind of utopianism of Next Gen. I mean, Next Gen is the most, I mean, people say Star Trek is utopian, and I would broadly agree with that. But Next Gen is absolutely the most utopian. And it is, you're right, it exists in a kind of sort of geopolitical 
uh, galaxy in which things feel fairly stable. You know, it's not so much about exploring the unknown and the kind of the dangers of the unknown in a sense. It's not, you, you know, you're right. Voyager is about both Voyager and Deep Space Nine are kind of under threat one way or another in a sense. You know, Deep Space Nine because there's this threat of this war Voyager because they're in this hostile environment and they're trying to get away from it, essentially. Uh, both those series in some ways are about people being somewhere that they don't really want to be. In Next Gen, everyone is exactly where they wanted to be. It's this, you know, they've got the best job on the best ship. And a lot of it is, you know, ferrying diplomats around, all the sort of things that people say about next gen but i think there is the sense that there's this kind of stable utopia um and i suppose maybe what the pushback from some of those other series is is representing is a kind of sense that maybe the next gen position is kind of complacent that there's a slightly whether it's that we see it as ridiculous or that we just see it as not very human i mean in the same way as you know what deep space nine kind of says is well yeah you say you've got rid of money but we haven't really got rid of money you say you've got rid of religion we haven't really got rid of religion you know all these things are actually still kind of in play all these kind of uh less utopian less sort of perfected to some extent arguably certainly from a kind of roddenberry perspective you know things like money and religion so they're all kind of connected they're all these things that are are things that as he would say, it sort of belong in the past for humanity, that we ought to be able to move, we ought to be kind of rise, be able to rise above them. Um, and in Next Gen, it sort of seems like we have risen above all those things. And then the other series keep kind of pulling us back down slightly or kind of grounding us slightly. And I think it's not so much that they're too busy for these kind of high cultural pursuits, because there's a lot of leisure time, actually, on both DS9 and Voyager. And I'd say Voyager does sort of have a, a mix, as I'd say. But my feeling is if you if you sort of say, what's the, what do people do in their time off in Voyager? Okay, they go to that French bar. They shoot some pool. Uh, they, you know, they they play Captain Proton on a holiday. They they do they do quite kind of lowbrow. Not not that going to French bar is particularly lowbrow, but you know, they, they, it's just entertainment. It's about having fun. It's about kind of kicking back. It's about kind of enjoying yourself. Again, on Deep Space Nine, what do they do in the Hollow Suites? Well, okay, a lot of people go to the Hollow Suites for reasons that we probably can't talk about on a family friendly podcast. Uh, quite explicitly in Deep Space Nine, they talk about that in a way that they don't really. Uh, they allude to very kind of coyly in Next Gen. Um, but they also go to kind of play James Bond fantasies. They go to play out war fantasies. They go out to play, you know, more like kind of video games in a sense, these kind of things. Um, they're not going there typically for lofty cultural pursuits. The kind of lofty cultural pursuits. Now and then the Bajorans come up with some sort of festival or something that involves a recital. And it always seems slightly dull and kind of, you, you, you know, it's, it, it's, it almost doesn't fit somehow with the mood of the show and the mood of the station. So I think there's just this kind of sense that as in the way that those later series were slightly as much as they respected that they'd kind of come out of Next Gen, they were sort of slightly pushing back against it. And I think this is one of the areas where Yes, they're still going to borrow from Shakespeare. Yes, they're still going to kind of invoke this kind of human culture now and then. And we do have, I mean, on Primitive Culture, our latest episode that just dropped uh, was about Dante in Voyager. Two episodes of Voyager uh, have Janeway uh, reading Dante and talking about Dante. So, you know, it's not like the kind of highbrow stuff has gone out the window altogether. But I think there's more of an emphasis on the kind of schlocky entertainment on the kind of um on, on entertainment as opposed to sort of edifying culture somehow um and possibly that's a little bit more realistic for a group of people in a kind of quasi uh, military environment who need something to you know kick back after their shifts ended and try to relax and and kind of uh you know get through to the end of the day it could be the case that the voyager and deep space nine crew were a lot of times a bit younger so maybe less likely to access Shakespeare and classical music. Like, I, su I suppose 
a lot of the young people I know would never listen to classical music. So most of the people that I know that listen to classical music are a lot older. So the people that are going to listen to classical music on the next generation are Picard, obviously because he's older, and Data, because he's trying to learn from the best of humanity. And the best that humanity has to offer are all our um, amazing composers that have lived throughout history and Shakespeare and all the amazing literary works that we have available. Maybe well, you do get that. that dynamic, I guess, with Riker as well, because you get that set up with Picard and Riker where uh, Riker never knows what Picard's up to. I mean, you get it in Darmok. He comes in and he, he sees the the text of Gilgamesh on Picard's uh, sofa or whatever, and he says, oh, what is that, Greek or something? And he says, no, no, it's, you know, it's the epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, you get it again in First Contact, where he comes in, where Picard's playing that music. And he's a... And I can't, he's a <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, so again, there's that kind of sense. It reminds me very much of, um, I don't know if you've ever watched Inspector Morse. It's basically the Morse-Lewis dynamic in Inspector Morse. Inspector Morse is always listening to classical music and Sergeant Lewis has no idea about any of it and is just, you know, he's, he's kind of a, an ordinary guy. Basically, he's the kind of Miles O'Brien in a sense to Inspector Morse is the kind of Captain Picard. The, and there is an age dynamic there, you're right. And, and maybe that is part of it. And even in Next Gen, I mean... Riker, as I say, not that interested uh, in these kind of uh, high cultural pursuits, much more interested in jazz, much more interested in kind of um, sort of more modern stuff one way or another. Uh, the other character, I don't feel Troy really uh, expresses all that much interest. And maybe that's because we sort of see her as, as Betazoid and, and therefore kind of alien. It's kind of foreign to, to, to that culture uh, one way or another. I mean, Beverly obviously is very into theatre, but she's into it from a kind of Amdram uh, perspective, if you know what I mean. So she's doing Serrano de Bergerac or she's doing whatever, uh, you, you know, but she's also doing that play that Riker is in where in Frame of Mind like schism, uh, yeah. is not... Was it Fris- exactly, Fris- you know, it's, it, uh, Frame of Mind, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is You know, it, it, he's certainly not doing Shakespeare. He's, he's doing some kind of um, what feels quite sort of modern psychological thriller type thing. Um, so there's a kind of... Maybe it is really, it's Picard as much as it's next gen. But I think the thing is Picard is so central to the sort of ethos of next gen, more so in some ways than, certainly than Cisco is on Deep Space Nine. I mean, Cisco sets a lot of the tone of Deep Space Nine uh, and obviously, you know, he's a very key character in terms of the overall storyline and the arc and everything. And, you, you know, not least all the kind of um, mystical religious stuff and so on. But I suppose there's a sense that Deep Space Nine as a kind of community doesn't revolve around Cisco and his values, particularly necessarily, to the extent that even there's that episode where they all go to the holodeck to Vix, and Cisco's like, "Yeah, I'm not doing that," and and, and it's a kind of um, tension back and forth as to you know why is that Cisco doesn't want to get involved in what his crew are doing, and it's very much it's not Picard not joining in the poker game because he wants to remain aloof. It's Cisco saying, "Actually, I've got a problem with this, and I don't want to support it." And in the end, they kind of twist his arm and talk him into it. But I think it, it just sort of goes to show that the kind of the the sort of the the entertainment, the kind of cultural pursuit there. And maybe actually, maybe it is a little bit like the poker game. I mean, maybe that's an element of it. Maybe Picard didn't go to the poker game because he's a snob and he thinks poker is for, you know, kind of, it's sort of a waste of time. And it's also, again, kind of linked to the capitalism that they have notionally got rid of because it's all about money and about gambling. And in some ways, poker on, in Star Trek makes no sense because no one's really winning or losing anything. At least in Voyager, they were gambling rations and they, you know, they had limited supply so they were no longer in this kind of post-scarcity situation they actually meant something um 
so who knows? Maybe there is that element to that. Maybe it's not just that he's remaining aloof. Maybe he's kind of snobbish about uh, poker playing one way or another. But he does say that he played in his youth. So, you know, who knows? Maybe it's not that. But but I think with Cisco, it's definitely, it's not, um, I don't think Cisco's interests set the tone for the whole show in that way. It's, you know, individual people are interested in their, they have their own hobbies and they're interested in their own things. Cisco's interested in his things. Dax is interested in her things. You know, Wolf has his, Klingon operas and his, his own sort of Klingon things. Yeah, everyone's kind of got their own, uh, got their own stuff that they're into. Um, and, and it's it's more kind of individual. So I really have to mention that, and I, yes, there's lots of literature in Star Trek, but in terms of classical music, because I'm a classically trained musician, there was a total of 28 times classical music was used in Next Generation. Does that... Uh, oh, okay. I, I thought you were going to say in Star Trek, because I was going to ask if that includes the Beastie Boys or not. No. No. Um, <laughs> we don't do those movies. Um, this is a Next Generation <laughs> podcast. How dare you? I know. I know. <laughs> so we've had... Just to name the composers that we've heard in Next Generation, we've heard Bach, Beethoven, Berlioz, Brahms, Chopin, Dvorak, Halvorsen, Handel, Haydn, Momhu, Mozart, Puccini, Reicha, Satie, Sousa, Tarega, and Verdi. So it's just like there's so when I was researching, there's just so much classical music. And by far my favorite is the inclusion of Chopin's trio for violin, cello, and piano from the episode Lessons, which uh, Nella Darren plays with data on the violin. It's just an amazing piece of music. And there is that sense, absolutely, in the episode Lessons of, you know, music as this thing that brings these characters together you know that the, the kind of romance of it the kind of um that's what they have in common and, and you know they, they're doing their kind of two-person recital essentially you know picard with his flute and her with her little roll-up piano and so on i suppose you do kind of get again with voyager and the episode counterpoint you get this sense of i mean that's an episode that really leans on on classical music and you know and the kind of um you know the formal elements of it this kind of the fact the episode is called counterpoint and they kind of talk about it and that uh Again, there's this sense of the sort of culture that that's what links Janeway to this very ambivalent, ambiguous uh, character. You know, is he a villain? Is he a hero? You, you know, what is he? Is this kind of um, interest in in classical music one way or another? They sort of share this this passion, and and there's this sort of. But again, you could say there's this sort of question mark around it because do we trust this guy? Does the fact that he seems very cultured and very sort of sophisticated uh, does that mean he's a good person? Because he's not Captain Picard. Do you know what I mean? It's kind, of, it's, it's kind of, it's not a guarantee of anything in Voyager. If anything, it's kind of it ties into. I mean, that episode, which has this whole kind of shadow of, of Anne Frank and the Nazis and so on, it's much more this sense of, you know, of exactly those, those that kind of Nazi stereotype of the the kind of evil person who's you know playing beautiful classical music and then murdering people at the same time. You know, which we see with the Cardassians in DS Nine as well. Again, it's kind of sense that. Um, you know, and the Cardassians are kind of cultural snobs to some extent, you know, talking about their literary epics and their, you know, all these kind of things. There's there's, there's no guarantee that these things necessarily uh, make people more refined or more um, sort of decent human beings one way or another. It may be that the person who's, you know, uh, playing Captain Proton or whatever it is, is actually a better guy, ultimately. Well, that was a really interesting discussion and I'm going to have to possibly have a lie down in a dark room um, maybe just watch Star Trek instead have a glass of wine, chill out a bit um, there's lots of food for thought there um, Amy, 
Do you want to come your final thoughts? Yeah, absolutely wonderful discussion, uh, Duncan. Thank you so much for coming on. I loved how listening to you compare through the series because I was just so focused on next gen, but to compare and contrast and see how high culture is interpreted and used in the other series was absolutely uh, mind-opening. And just to compare and contrast, I loved it. I loved looking at the different types of culture, high culture that was used. You know, obviously Shakespeare and other works of art. Um, you know, we didn't talk that much about Gilgamesh. And I remember hearing uh, and reading about when they, when Darmok came on air that the libraries in the U.S. where everyone went to go and request Gilgamesh. And so the, the, there was this huge waiting list uh, for the story of Gilgamesh, and I thought that was funny. Um, but yeah, and also the visual arts and all of the paintings and just the music and the string quartets and just how it is infused in Next Gen and, and how it is used and how we get to see our characters use the high culture and, and these arts uh, to their advantage and how it builds the character and specifically like how we learn about humanity through uh, these cultural events and, and how we see Q try to use it and how we see data learning about humanity, I just think really helps us to learn about our humanity and what is it, who we are, and is that who we can become through learning about the classics, I just think is, is really great. Duncan, your final thoughts? I guess one thing that uh, just strikes me that we haven't talked about notably is the next gen movies. And I think there's a reason for that, which is that as much as they are on one level, a kind of continuation of the next gen series, they are very different and they maybe do have more in common with the Star Trek that was being made around the same time. So those kind of later seasons of DS9, Voyager, etc., Enterprise, even, you know, kind of going forward. And so maybe there's an element of this that is not just about that particular series, that, but that is set in a particular kind of bubble in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. And even by the mid 90s, something has shifted, something has kind of uh, changed one way or another. So in the next gen movies, you know, we don't see Picard, the man of culture and of, of Shakespeare and, and Dickens and everything, you, you know, in the classical concerts, we see Picard, you know, with a gun. We see the Dixon Hill version of Picard. We, we see Picard uh, with, you know, with his guns out, <laughs> literally uh, kind of in both senses. I mean, there's this sense of this character is, is kind of being reframed as much more of a sort of traditional action hero in some ways. Um, and so a lot of that sort of cultural stuff goes by the wayside. I mean, maybe that's also because of the kind of need for a, the, the kind of narrative needs of a movie. I mean, a lot of this stuff sort of fills into the category of what people talk of as pillar filler you know one of the things that was so great about next gen was this sense of the crew kind of in the off hours the sort of almost inconsequential scenes the sort of background stuff the b stories all this kind of stuff that really the original series didn't uh, have in the same way and i think the later series developed in quite different directions one way or another um with next gen that was a real key part of i suppose michael pillar's kind of vision for how to make that show work you know from the third season onwards um, and it's it's definitely kind of characteristic of those sort of filler scenes of that kind of background, the background storylines in a sense that are not the the kind of main story of the week that that is often where these kind of cultural pursuits 
fit in. It, you know, even in a lot of those episodes, it's in the teaser. You, you know, so something like The Defector, the Henry V scene is in the teaser and that sort of sets up the story or the kind of theme or, or one of the major themes of the entire episode in the sense that there's that kind of, that link is there. And by putting it in that way, it's almost sort of putting it in a box. It's like a kind of um, a little sort of introduction or a kind of prologue or something uh, making this link to the past, making this link to kind of um, classical human culture. And then there's sort of the Star Trek episode that kind of spins off from that one way or another. But certainly it seems to me that by the time you get to the movies, either there just isn't time for that anymore or it's kind of, it, it feels a bit passe by that point. It feels a bit sort of, you know, that almost it's next gen has dated itself almost even within a matter of years somehow. That's that's something that we did on the TV series, but that's not really appropriate to bring forward to the big screen. That's interesting. Um, I think with movies, there's definitely less narrative space in order to include all these kind of high culture points that we've become used to. However, to give them their due, we did see Bach and Insurrection and Beethoven. Uh, we saw Berlioz in First Contact, um, Moby Dick in First Contact also. Um, Haydn's String Quartet Number no. 5 was in Insurrection as well. Mompou's Cancio a Danza was a Nemesis. So still, they still found wee points taking it, keep it in there. Obviously, because they knew like 30 years later, we'd be talking about it on a podcast. <laughs> well, you're right. I mean, certainly uh, First Contact of all the films is the one where it feels like it's the most tied in somehow. And particularly that Moby Dick mm. scene, yeah, absolutely. You, you know, it's absolutely integral. I mean, it's the key scene in the whole film, in a sense. So you see, yeah, that absolutely is there. But again, there's that kind of sense that in that scene, Picard has forgotten the lesson from that book. And it takes Lily, who's not even read the book, to come in and say, you know, call him Captain Ahab, call it, so call him out to his face, and then it reminds him. And when he when he has that scene where he, you know, misquotes that line from Moby Dick, it's this kind of real moment of realization and reconnecting to something for him. And it's interesting that is a kind of that's the moment, I suppose, when movie Picard remembers TV Picard is when he uh, begins reciting this literature in a sense, you know, and he he kind of suddenly, having been very angry and kind of aggressive goes quite sort of quiet and introspective uh, as he recites this line. And from then on, there's this sense of that, that's the kind of moment almost of, of self-realisation. I mean, you know, Amy was saying earlier that these, these exposure to these classics is about sort of finding out who you are and so on. And for Picard, it's really about reminding himself who he is and what his values are. And that is done through this link to this great work of literature. That's what kind of brings him back to himself when he's in danger of losing himself. Well, I think we get this going back to the classics, even in generations, like when they're giving Worf his promotion, like they go back to, you know, ancient times of sailing on the, you know, the ocean, right? And and giving him his promotion that way. So it's like, it's always, it seems like TNG is always looking back to these classics, to this time, a simpler time and, and you know, sort of extrapolating and, and bringing it to, okay, how, what can we do? So I sort of see that connection of, you know, linking to the classics, even in their giving of promotions. I think this may be the Earl Grey episode, but what I've learned the most, possibly. Um, well, that's because you always are teaching us the science, so. You, you know all the science already, yeah. <laughs> it's it's the fact that this is the episode I've known least about, with maybe the exception of the classical music. Um, 
So, Duncan, thank you so much for coming on today and teaching us so much. Um, it was really interesting. And as I always say on Earl Grey, um, it makes me watch Star Trek in a different light. Because you research it, you watch it, then you research it, and it changes your perception of it. And then you come on and talk about it, and you get to other people's opinions about it, so it changes your perception again. And it just nourishes you and enriches the experience, I think. So, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Well, that is absolutely my... That's what fascinates me about... I mean, that's why, you know, primitive culture exists. That's basically why I enjoy doing that show. To be honest, it's not... It's as much the research as the podcasting. The thing I love about that show, because I, I write history books as my day job, and I will spend, you know, a year, two years, sometimes researching one particular topic in enormous detail. Uh, and, you, and you get to know everything there is to know about that particular thing, and then you write the book, and then you move on to the next thing. But it's a lot of work each time. I just love being able to it's not just the Star Trek. I mean, I love going and watching Star Trek and talking about it, but I, I love learning about, you know, as I said, going and reading the Epic of Gilgamesh. I would probably, uh, you know, have gone to my grave without having done that. Uh, you know, I, di I didn't go out and rent it from the library the moment I watched that episode, uh, unlike all those people in the United States. But I did, uh, you know, as re research for a podcast on it, I thought, well, I better go and read this book or this, this poem um, and loved it. And I think that's one of the things uh, that, you know, fascinates me about Star Trek is it is a franchise where the writers are very uh, well read, are very kind of whether that's in literature, history, etc., uh, and are bringing a lot of stuff to the table as inspiration one way or another. And often it's stuff that we may not be particularly um, familiar with, and you can learn a lot and uh, it can benefit you a lot from going and engaging with those texts. Uh, and that music and that, those plays, etc. You, you know, in your own life, but it will also give you a, often an interesting perspective on the Star Trek episodes. That you, you know, there are kind of links there, there are connections, there are kind of threads um, that you might not have been aware of if you, you know, if you, if you don't go and read those materials. I think that's what I love about sci-fi in general. Really, it kind of draws on all this classical culture a lot to tell a story. Like, look at the planet of Vulcan, named after the, was it the Greek or Roman god Hephaestus? Um, the god of volcanoes and fire and metal. And so Vulcan is a really hot planet. Um, yeah, it's sci-fi, generally speaking, has taught me a lot about kind of Greek mythology and Roman mythology. And it's why I went and read Stephen Fry's book, Mythos. It's why I bought a, a, an encyclopedia of mythology, and it's, yeah. Well, that's a whole nother podcast. It just mm -hmm. explains a lot about what I'm interested in now. So, right. Duncan, tell me where people can contact you on the internet, please. Well, you can find me podcasting uh, on Primitive Culture on Trek FM, talking about um, a lot of the kind of same kind of things we've been talking about today, uh, literary inspirations on Star Trek, history as well. We do a bit of film, um, you know, some classic films, some more kind of schlocky films. So we sort of cover it all. Um, you can find me on the Babel Conference uh, if you want to, to talk about anything connected to one of those episodes or, or, or any other Star Trek um, episode or, or, or podcast that been covering on the network uh, and you can find me on twitter at barrett's books that's uh B -A -R -R -E -T -T. i need to do a little thing which is to amy could you read this line for me please 
I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England and I quote the fights historical. From marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted too with matters mathematical. I understand equations both simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem, I'm teeming with a lot of news. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. That'll do it. I will <laughs> edit together. I will apply okay. many layers of auto-tune. Okay. Give us some <laughs> reverb on it. It will sound amazing. Thank you for that. Well, it's been so much fun talking about high culture in TNG, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here in the network. Here is what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, continuing mission. Why they killed that officer, what they have to do with Project Perseus. Can I just can I just throw my two cents worth in and say I, I know who they are? They're Smurfs. Oh, if only. From the planet Smurfia. <laughs> Tell me I'm right. If you insist, sure, you're right. You're right. You're That's not. But I'll tell I, you. Oh no! I've ruined nice. it. I've ruined it for everybody. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's the first mystery, and then a series of other mysteries happen as it becomes clear that it, on at least one other of the visionary class ships that have now they're now well on their way outside Federation space, that there was a saboteur. Mm. Earl Grey. But he also, he, you know, the first day of shooting, I shook his hand and I said, Mr. Nimoy, you seem to think I, I know what I'm doing here, but I like really don't. And he had said, he had said to me in the, in the, in the audition for the Vulcan uh, um, mystique, think 1000 years of wisdom behind the eyes. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's a tall order. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot to to put in the eyes. <laughs> Literary treks. We're not messing around anymore. The reset button is gone. Characters' lives are going to move forward. Fortunes are going to change. When things happen, you can take it seriously. It's not all just going to get forgotten by the time the next book comes out next month. This is going to be something that is going to carry forward and is going to have lasting repercussions on all of the literary books, not just the ones written by Mac, not just the ones in this particular sub-series, but by joining them all together and having nods to the Star Trek Corps of Engineers, to Voyager, to DS9, to Enterprise. Standard Orbit. We've had some some various uh, folks and, you know, uh, guest star roles and things that had passed here and there, um, you know, the last year or so. Um, and, and all of that is sad, but when, when somebody who is really a part of the foundation of what Star Trek is and what it became, it really hits you kind of hard. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV or the desktop Apple Podcasts app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review that helps others to find the show and we might read it on air. 
If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube and most third-party apps and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it will come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey that will come right to us and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter and Instagram at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. So, Amy, where can people contact you when you're not playing cello, singing opera, and doing foot pottery simultaneously? Well, that's a lot of my time dedicated to doing that. But when I'm not doing that, you can find me over on United Federation of Podcasts, where I have started a new podcast called All Good Things. Yes. So that's going to be talking about all things Star Trek uh, with my good friend, Patrick Devlin. So you can find me there. I am still in the Babel Conference where I love being. And you can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson. Uh, So Joe, where can people find you when you are not listening to classical music? Well, they can still find me, even though I might still be listening to classical music, on the Babel Conference. You can email me, joepodcasts at gmail.com, or you can get me on Twitter at joeyjoe77uk. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Joe, bonus question? Oh, please. Alrighty. So out of all of the high culture uh arts, performing arts, visual arts, Shakespeare, what is one high culture thing that you would like to include in your life? Well, darling, I'm already an actor and a musician, so perhaps something else like art, like painting. However, I have done some art classes recently in watercolour and acrylics so yes i don't know i'm multi-talented you see so um i really can do anything if i put my mind to it if the notion takes me you know oh my gosh that's great okay and you amy please do it in a voice oh in my high culture voice oh yes well let's see (laughs) Don't tease me about my accents. No, your accents are darling, divine. My high culture that I would like to include is to go to the theater. I enjoy live theater so much, and I don't get the opportunity. Las Vegas 
could be a wee bit more cultured. Indeed. All you Indeed. can see is like Donnie and Marie and yes. Michael Jackson in virtual reality, who's dead now. Yes, and Thunder Down Under. That's not high culture. Mm-hmm. And the Chippendales. Yes. Not very high On culture the at all. Let's avoid no. that. Who would, who would ever live in Las Vegas? Oh, my dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> Disgusting. Ah, what you, what came over, what came over us? What, what happened there, Amy? Well, we are going to take this opportunity to recognize our current high-cultured associate producers. They are Norman Lau, Michael Huto, Thomas Appel, Chris Tribusio, Jim McMahon, Joe Keegan, and Justin Oza. Thank you for supporting Trek FM. And especially Earl Grey. I like how you said his name, Justin Oza. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Great joy and gratitude. This is to Amy. Oh, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love is like the melody that's sweetly played in tune. So fair art thou, my bonny lass, so deep in love am I, and I will love thee still, my dear, till all the seas gang dry. Oh, that was so beautiful.